We are right now in the gooey state of when the caterpillar is going through its metamorphosis. It's in this chrysalis and it's gooey and it's, it, it's, it's dark and it's full of confusion, but there will come a breakthrough into something better because we've been forced to reflect about issues we have ignored for too long. This is the Electric Perspectives Global Circuit, where we discuss the trends shaping our electric future. Here's your host, EEI Vice President for International Programs, Lawrence Jones. This morning, I am delighted to be joined by our guests who happen to be Giles Hutchins and Laura Storm of the recent book, Regenerative Leadership, The DNA of Life Affirming 21st Century Organizations. Laura and Giles, welcome to EI. It's lovely being here with you. So I'd like to start, as I always do, with these very interesting books. And maybe we'll go to you, Laura, first. Why regeneration? What drove you to think about this topic? So both uh, Giles and I have been have been longing for a deeper rooted approach to leadership geared for the 21st century for a long time. Giles can tell his his story himself, um, coming very much from the private sector. And I've been working within the field of sustainability and climate change policy for for a few decades, um, but, but felt something deeper was missing. It felt like we as not only sustainability professionals or executives, but but as homo sapiens at large, was missing the point um, that we kept approaching leadership and sustainable transformations in a very silo-based manner, that we kept missing the point that this has to be a holistic approach. This has to be an interconnected effort where we have an awareness around what is the what is the logic of of life itself? What is the guiding principles on on this planet that we are fortunate to live on? And how can we approach this in a way where we are focusing not only on depleted ecosystems and nature, but also have an awareness around the fact that we as a species have never been more depleted. Uh, in terms of our inner resources as we are today. We have never been more stressed, burned out, anxious, suicide levels have never been higher. And for us to, to, as a collective, embark on a journey towards a prosperous, thriving future, we need a holistic approach. We need a regenerative approach that is healing the depletion um, of our inner and outer ecosystems. So, so that's why uh, Giles and I decided to join efforts and bring in both of our perspectives and come up with a new approach to leadership and, and transitions of our societies that were focused on a holistic, interconnected effort that is healing not only inner ecosystems, but also outer ecosystems. Interesting. So Giles, let's let's hear your viewpoint on this. And, and, and I want specifically link two things here. In the book, right in the beginning, you talk about the, the sort of a left brain, right brain analogy, and we can come back to that. And I found it interesting. Oftentimes, you don't have male and female co-authors working on a book. Uh, oftentimes, it's either one or the other. And so I found it very interesting that both of you bringing your sort of a left brain, right brain mentality, at least beyond the stereotypes. What's your view on regeneration? And, and tell me, what was it like working with Laura 
uh, in terms of this particular project when it comes to left brain, right brain? Well, you've loaded up two big questions there for me, Lawrence. So I'll do my <laughs> best to, um, to not whip through them both, but uh, attend to them. So regeneration, first off. Uh, that, I, just to build on what Law was just talking about, I think is about um, this split that we are experiencing at the moment um, in prevalent leadership consciousness, but of course, not just leadership. And we talk about in the book that a sort of split manifests in four ways. The first that you've just mentioned around left brain and right brain hemisphere, more focused on the left brain hemisphere and focusing in on the bits and the bites. And then the masculine and feminine, again, we're more focused on the masculine ways of behaving. Um, and there's the human and nature. And again, this sense of separation of humanity from nature, which we're seeing more and more of the more we get caught up in the technosphere and things like COVID have kind of helped exacerbate that sense of separation in some ways so we can see it more readily. And there's also this sense of inner and outer, which is important that we focus more on the outer, objectify, we see we, what gets measured gets done um, is the mantra, the tangibility, the physical form, and all of the um, inner intuitive, um, all of that other aspect gets ignored. So regenerative is really fundamentally about allowing more of our humanity to integrate. And in that integration, we bring in a different quality of consciousness, one that is actually more open to life, one that is just more inclusive, one that is just more alive. It's more regenerative. Um, so really what regenerative in its essence means is this sort of ability to deal with the challenges and tensions that we find within life and allow them to become crucibles for deeper learning. We do that by bringing more of ourselves into the engagement. And so we integrate the left and right brain hemispheres, the masculine, the feminine, the human, the nature and the inner and outer. And that's what we were born to do. It's what we do as human beings. But at the moment, we're in a dominant paradigm that encourages too much of the other. So it's how to invite in some of that. So we get a reintegration. And so now to your second question, how did Law and I integrate? How did we um, uh, uh, work together? And actually, I mean, it, 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 in many ways, it's very symbolic um, in that regard. And the fact that there were times when one of us would perhaps be more focused and the other more intuitive, uh, other times when the other would be more descriptive and the other more factual. And both of us, I feel, uh, I can't speak for Laura, but I think both of us actually have masculine and feminine displayed within us. And it was nice in our relationship to see them interweaving. That Sometimes we would see more of the masculine come out in one of us or more of the feminine come out in the other. And having that mirror in a way, which is what life is essentially a mirror to see ourselves more clearly. Um, having a mirror in a partner is profound. Uh, I've, I've written books before. I couldn't have written this book without Laura. Um, the relationship we've had and what's been developed through that interrelation is what's created the, the, the music. And that's the same with what regenerative means in our organizations. How do we bring in the relationality? How do we celebrate the differences? How do we allow the tensions to become crucibles for learning so the organization comes alive? And I, I, I like the notion of reconnection. And, and I like the fact that you 
you take us back in sort of a historical context, where do we lose the connection with the world, with, with nature? Given where we are today, and, and I'd like to get your thoughts on the, this rise of systems thinking, because mm-hmm. part of the challenge we're facing, climate change, COVID-19, income inequality, all these grand challenges require us to think differently. How do we do that uh, from your standpoint? I mean, what are, what are some of the, the easiest ways we can start thinking about reconnecting with this sort of a systems approach to how we how we govern the world from a leadership perspective? I think the the COVID-19 pandemic has never or hasn't until now been a clearer case for systems thinking. It's never been easier for for systems thinkers to communicate the importance of everyone being able to think in interconnected systems. Um, And it has made many people aware that this is a skill they lack for both internally in their organizations, uh, but also as as a human being. Um, Suddenly we are homeschooling our children, everything kind of, we need to deal with everything at once. Um, childcare, schooling, uh, the success of, of, of our organizations, are we able to steer through these chaotic times while having to deal with everything? Everything is interconnected and suddenly we see this inbuilt fragility and inbuilt stress that we have in our systems. Um, it has been easier for Giles and I to communicate the importance of having inbuilt resiliency into your organizational structures but also into your life design. Are you actually um, restoring, replenishing your own inner ecosystem? Are you actually, as a leader, holding space for systemic emergence? Instead of going in a fear-based mindset while traveling through the, the pandemic, where you can come in, become incredibly focused on what kind of new initiatives and products and projects do we need to launch without stepping back, sensing into the living system of your organization and starting to sense in as an ecosystemic facilitator, one of the concepts that Jazz and I talk about in the book, it's incredibly important for our executives and, and managers at last to be able to function as an ecosystemic facilitator, sensing into where is my system currently thriving? Where is there a lot of friction? Where is there a lot of stagnated energy that I need to help address? We cannot, we cannot be stewards of our organizations and, 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 and having them travel safely through pandemics or challenging times if we are not stepping back and having that systemic view of how can I make sure that I have this inbuilt resiliency. So one of the things that we are teaching or helping uh, the organizations that we are working with is to step back, sense into your system, start to sense into each of the cells in your organism, each of the employees, how are they thriving? And how is the the overall system at large actually thriving right now? And forget a bit about big launches and instead focusing on making sure that your organism, your living system is actually thriving and healthy. And then we can start to add in and add on new projects and new launches to, to, to move towards a prosperous and thriving regenerative way of doing business. On that point, Giles, what are the barriers to having that mindset that Laura articulated for leaders to, to sort of embrace that mindset of thinking along the lines of the cell 
you know, the role of the individual, the organization, space for thinking differently. What are the barriers uh, to doing that? Yes, uh, I think um, it's it's back to your um, first question as well around systems thinking. It's recognizing that and, and you know, just be sort of theoretical for a moment and then get practical. You know, what we talk about in the book is how there's these three levels of systems thinking, systemic awareness and ecosystemic awareness. So, you know, I think quite more and more people in these days are getting systems thinking, yeah? Um, but, and I had a call this morning um, with a design agency where we were uh, in detail talking about this, how, you know, there's one thing mapping the system out there there's one thing understanding the interconnections, for instance, that happens, for instance, when we look at circular economics or we look at um, uh, green supply chains and so forth, um, which is still quite cerebral. It's still in the head. It's still essentially left-brained hemispheric in its orientation. That's a subtle difference between that, which is mapping something out there, still a separation between inner and outer, into then going into systemic awareness. What Laura was just talking about, systemic, even before we get to ecosystemic, is that capacity to then start sensing into the system. And that's embodied. So to your second question, which is, so how? What's the difference? Um, well, it's important to know that we're shifting from a kind of mechanistic understanding of the organization, silos, um, functional units, and so forth, into a systems thinking approach, but then more into a systemic awareness of actually feeling, having an embodied experience. So number one most important thing is for us to enliven our own capacity as human beings to be able to sense and respond. Because we had it as children, we were born with it, we have been numbed by uh, not just business education, but the, the, the relentless uh, pressure that we're put under and the high beta state that we operate within means that we actually reduce down our natural capacities. What we call in the book, our supernature, our and activating that supernature is a very important part of being able to then allow that systemic capacity to unfold. At the organizational level, what we do is we identify people who can naturally do that and usually get the organization um, to sense themselves to identify those people. Mm -hmm. And then those people can we can work with, we can hold space so they can start to develop that capacity of sensing and responding. And then they can start seeing the system, start seeing the blind spots, start seeing the behaviors, start seeing the underlying belief systems. Um, and so that can start coming out into the consciousness of the system. So let's talk a little bit about the logic of life. Uh, that, that, that's part of the book. One of the sections in the book that I found very educational and very enlightening because I, I learned a couple of new things that I hadn't, I hadn't sort of thought of before. Can you briefly describe the logic of life for the listener. What does it mean, the logic of life that you described in the book? Just give us a quick, you know, 30,000 view description of the logic of life and what are the key essence of it that you think the audience should be aware of? Logic of life has seven principles to it. And very briefly, uh, life affirming. Life, when we look at life, um, all of life affirms life. It's regenerative, not toxic. It creates the conditions conducive to life. So it's important to understand that because many people um, today, we feel that life is essentially about hyper-competition, uh, about scarcity and, uh, and about sort of um, getting one over. But actually, we find that actually the life creates conditions for life. So that's the first principle. Then the second principle is about ever-changing and responsive. So we've got this, the fact that 
life is constantly changing. Yeah. Now we tend to think that we are adverse to change. Now what we're actually adverse to is sort of change being put upon us, but change is happening all the time. And we can encourage that changing by allowing ourselves to be more open to learning, to accepting, to curiosity. Yeah. Um, the third aspect of the logic of life is that everything is relational. Everything is collaborating. Everything is exchanging all the time. And again, that's a shift from machine thinking um, where there's push pull or there's transaction cause and effect into actually this relational experience. Then we talk about synergy and dinergy and diversity and how there's tensions and that actually set diversity is what allows the resilience of the system to thrive. And then the fifth is around cyclic and rhythmical, um, that everything is following a rhythm and a pulsation and, and is emergent as a, as a result of that. And then also that we talk about flows of energy. Um, there's exchanges of energy. Everything is flowing into something else and changing state. So when you look at the organization, the organization is full of energy, full of relationships of energy, full of exchanging. And also when we look at information flows or material flows, we see that we need to build in this recycling, this reusing, this replenishing, and this renewing all the time. And we talk about the seasons, how we have spring, summer, autumn, and winter, and that winter is a time of um, reflection and rejuvenation that allows the spring. So we need to build that in um, to how we operate in according to life. And the seventh principle is around what um, quantum scientists have found in the 20th century, and ancient wisdom traditions have known for millennia, that everything actually at a fundamental level has this level of interconnection to it. And that through various practices, um, I noticed Theory U was one of your books, um, uh, when we connect into source, we let go and open up into life, we allow this deeper essence to come in. So when you look at all of those principles together, all of those seven principles together, because they shouldn't really be seen as individual bits, what you have is a ground of being, a ground of behaving in life. Now, we naturally have that capacity within inside ourselves as human beings to open up to that way of living. Um, and that logic of life allows us to shift from that mechanistic thinking that we've been trained in in today's managerial mindset into opening up into that systems thinking, systemic awareness and ecosystem awareness. So the logic of life really is the ground. It's the ground upon which we then fit in the regenerative DNA model that we can apply to our organization. So um, that's a quick canter through the whole way in which life works. Um, Laura, do you want to add anything? No, you did a beautiful job, Giles. So in the essence is that we want to help um, not only executives and political leaders, um, but but everyone see that that we have been through a process where we have based our society design on degenerative principles, and that has meant that we are now on a trajectory. If we are not changing things radically, where we will be the first species in history to commit its own species suicide. Yep. So we need to change our ways and we need to redesign our societies and our approach to, to not only business, but to life on regenerative principles that are inspired by the logic of nature, the logic of life, the essence of how nature through the past 3.8 billion years have managed to evolve and 
um, and emerge new exciting life forms and clever design and, and based on an intelligence that we as Homo sapiens still haven't got our, our heads around. Um, and instead of ignorantly believing that we can um, design life and design our society on principles that are causing havoc on, on our inner and outer ecosystems, we need to humbly step back and see how could we in the next era, in the next, next epoch, how could we humbly be in partnership with this intelligence that is uh, that this planet Earth is based upon? So that's what we are trying to translate into a business context. And, and, and I use the word business here to include government, because I want to come back and talk about the government as an organization, species, as a living species, or as a living organism, and the challenges government is fa are facing around the world in terms of how governments emerge and how governments function. But before we get there, I want to talk about translating this very interesting concept of regeneration to the next generation. In the book, you talk about Greta Thunberg, uh, Giles, you have a daughter, and, and Laura, you have two kids. I have three kids. They're all in their very early ages. How do we teach regeneration, the concept of it, to elementary school kids? Because I think our generation, I won't say we're a lost cause, but I think we need to start thinking about how do we bring this new mindset into the educational system? Uh, because the educational system is what fosters some of the mechanistic arguments you've um, sort of cautioned us against. So maybe start with you, Laura. How do we translate this into something that educators can use to teach our kids this new mm -hmm. idea of regeneration? Thank you for this wonderful question. And it's something that, of course, is on our minds a lot, both having, um, having young, young children. Um, part of the reason why we moved to a permaculture farm in Portugal, we moved from the city of Copenhagen to to rule Portugal, um, to allow the space for our kids to immerse themselves more in nature. Um, Giles lives with his young girls um, on ancient woodland in, in the UK. Um, it's something that is incredibly important for both of us to teach these principles. And um, so they become a natural way of understanding life for our children. And it's something that is on my mind a lot. How could Giles and I translate uh, regenerative leadership into a children's book? Because the principles are, are quite simple and it's something that kids intuitively just gets. I take uh, my daughter uh, out in nature and, start, and, and, and have started to have these conversations with her around diversity in nature partnerships in nature, relationships in nature, teaching her about compost, about soil building. And she just gets this. Um, it's much easier to teach these principles to her than it is to uh, plus 40 executives. Else, do you want to chime in on this issue of, you know, plus 40 executives contra with the younger generation? What do you see as the next step in making regeneration mainstream, even with regards to things like urbanization. Because we, we have urbanization as a reality, right? Not everyone is going to live on a farm. Not everyone's going to live uh, in, a, in a woodland. So in an urban context, how do, we, how do we bring regeneration in this cemented, with the C word, society in which we live today? How do we do that? I think it's first important to realize that you know, we are nature, everything is nature. Um, and so 
Yes, there are more and more people living in, in, in urban situations. And I think what COVID has, has done, actually, and, and, um, with this sort of increasing um, focus on working digitally, is actually helped people see the importance of reconnecting to themselves, to nature, to um, nature all around them. And we, we've, you can find nature even in the cemented environment, you know, um, there's this little cracks where weeds grow or, or, or pigeons and the fresh air, of course, and the sunlight and um, your partner and your children and so forth. All of that is life. And even the connection through the screen that we're having now is life. And so, you know, a lot of this is about consciousness um, permeating through the logic of life. And so accessing that quality of consciousness in urban life, there are things that we can do on the outer dimension, like city planning um, and um, urban acupuncture that we talk about in the book and allowing flows. Um, so we encourage more relationality. We encourage more connection. You know, there's a big change going on in um, landlord and, and tenant relationships and tenancy laws at the moment because the property market, the commercial market, is obviously going through a radical transformation. Um, so how can we have multi-tenanted um, places where people have pop-ups, um, that people um, act in ways where they are working in relationship with others? You know, so you have people who are mending bicycles and having a cafe next to them and so forth. So you create that little diversity in places. Um, so that is regenerative, just as much as going out for a walk um, or going to the park. And then there's the inner dimension, which is just as important, which is often overlooked in mainstream sustainability activity today. And it's that is around, well, what is the quality of consciousness that we're actually bringing when we're designing um, these multi-tenanted places. And that's why in the book, when we talk about living systems design, we have a section specifically on what we call ecosystemic design. So where the, um, the, the designer is what I was relating to what I was talking to this design agency about this morning, where the designer is open. They've, they've done the, some works and practices that allow their body mind to open. So they're bringing a different quality of consciousness. They're not just mapping the system out there. They're bringing that ecosystemic consciousness into how they're designing things. That way we bring regenerative right into the beginning of how we're designing our places to live in, rather than sort of backfilling it with a sustainability report that then tries to add on or offset something downstream. It needs to be factored in all the way and that relates to your question around education. This needs to be built in all the way. We don't need to try and sort of uh, turn our children who are naturally regenerative into machine boxes um, that um, have A-levels in maths and chemistry like I do, which I've never used, um, to then um, be reconnected in some way later on in life with the beauty of life. We can, we can allow that to happen throughout the process and we can allow our, our whole education system to start working with the grain of life, with the tenor of humanity, rather than actually trying to enforce it into something else. So the good news is, is that we're actually unlocking um, mm. a lot of the challenges that we're pushing up against at the moment. Um, and, I, and I think this is a hugely rewarding um, journey, as well as a hugely challenging um, one as well. So I want to talk a little bit about government and, and in the context of climate change. And, and that's a big topic here. You know, Laura, you've done, you were involved with COP and, and Giles, you've been doing a work on sustainability. And I think we are the place where now business and government are at a sort of a 
an intersection. And the question I have, and we'll start with you, Laura, how can, re, how can the regenerative mindset or the concept of regeneration serve as an interface between those two worlds? Because public policy impacts government and I mean impacts business and business activities somehow end up impacting public policy. So how can regeneration, the notions of regeneration, the concepts, how can it serve as an interface for those two groups to communicate and to create the world we want? Because if those two great groups do not function in a sort of a synergistic way, uh, I think we're not gonna be able to address the, the large challenges we see. So can you talk about how you see regeneration being an interface for communicating between these two groups. Yeah, it's interesting um, you take the conversation there because without us doing much to attract political awareness, we've been approached by political parties both in the in the UK and in, in Denmark, my home country, um, because they're really interested in, in how can we integrate regenerative principles into our policy design and into our policy making. Because regeneration, regenerative business, regenerative leadership, um, regenerative society design is addressing the main challenges that we are facing in an interconnected way. And politicians are, they, their ears are open to that because they too are dealing with um, economy, but also they're dealing with um, with human beings that are in many ways suffering right now. It's also on the politician's agenda and radar that stress levels have never been higher. Um, that there's this, there is this apparent depletion of all our ecosystems. Um, there's a greater and greater awareness around that. So addressing that holistically with the regenerative approach to, to policy is something that is gaining a lot of interest. It's not something that the Jazz or I have been very kind of uh, public about. It's more happened below the radar where we have been advising processes but to inspire regenerative policymaking. And when I say regenerative policymaking, it's also in the way of approaching um, policy design. How can we in our processes Instead of creating a zero-sum game in, po in political discussions, how can we create a regenerative space for po political emergence? And what I mean by that is that politicians have been trained by um, the old mechanistic rigid logic of just fiercely putting your point through and with a very limited ability to actually listen. And, and some of the politicians that I've been in dialogue have tested out regenerative policymaking in the sense of what happens when we create a space where we are deeply listening, a concept that Jazz and I also unfold in the book. What happens um, for processes when we have this regenerative approach of actually being truly present, listening deeply? And is there a way where instead of rigidly focusing on getting your point through and your policy suggesting, suggesting through, is there a way where we can create a, a, a generative place, a regenerative space where something new can emerge, where, where all political kind of viewpoints soften a bit and see if there's something, is there a third dimension that we could co-create where we all felt a sense of ownership because the challenges that we, that we have to address as politicians is obvious for everyone. And we may not be 
equally passionate about, for example, climate change, but we are equally passionate about creating um, a prosperous economy. And for us to do that, we believe we need a regenerative approach. We need a regenerative economy and we need to redesign our, our society design in a way that is regenerative. And, and luckily that is getting the attention from both left wing and right wing because they can see uh, that, there's, that there's something here to explore more deeply. So Giles, as a business person, hearing what Laura just said, uh, when I was reading parts of the book, one thing that kept coming to me was the economic model that runs the world. And that economic model, one of the premises, competition is great, mm-hmm. right? And you talk in the book about survival of the fittest and that uh, fittest didn't mean uh, fittest from the standpoint of, uh, you know, uh, who is going to win, but more fittest in terms of being adaptive and being uh, letting yourself evolve and emerge, if you may. How does one in the current economic environment in which we live, economic models, scarcity and choice is all about competition, competition. How does the competitive mindset function in a regenerative world? Yeah, well, again, fascinating question because literally just before this call, I had a call with a company um, um, speaking with um, their board there where it's a, I mean, to use spiral dynamics, it's 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 an orange um, company that's very um, focused on um, the numbers, um, and you know, perhaps rightly so. And um, we talk in living systems culture uh, in that section of the DNA how you know this important for survival and also thrival. So you need to get the bottom. You need to get the the survival stuff sorted. If you talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you need to get all that sort of stuff sorted. Um, so then you can go more into the transformational. Um, I think what's happening in the context today for organisations because the level of change and and change upon change is so significant uh, that organizations know that they just have to do more than simply survive you have to one has to back to education again tackle the worldview that one is drawing from i mean donella meadows the uh, systems thinker talked about that the intervention of the worldview is the most important and yet in some ways the most sort of difficult because as soon as you go into that you naturally go into belief systems and consciousness and you have to unpack that that's why we take people into nature because you need space you need to allow people to ease for that world shoot uh, world shift to happen it's not just something that happens at the head level so if you're going to shift an organization that is very much rooted in the um, existing business mindset of survival of um, scarcity of competition uh, essentially a war mindset i will characterize it as that and you see this war mindset by the way playing out in politics you see it playing out in sustainability you see it and the whole climate emergency movement a lot of that war mentality is in it so it's everywhere and it's in the environmental movement as well so let's not just assume it's in the sort of um, red-blooded business person it's, it's everywhere and it's a mindset that allows us, that encourages us to narrow down and to separate self from other and to look at causes and effects. And it's what's created much of our today's society, a linearity. So you have to tackle that. You have to speak to that. And I think the good news is, is that 
in speaking to that, one is touching one's humanity. You're opening up into someone. You're allowing, you've got to create the right trust and the right framework to allow that person to open up. Yeah. So at business schools where we deal with people that um, not necessarily used to our work, um, again, it's taking people out into nature. When you, by taking people out into nature, it's surprising how people just ease off a lot of their projections, a lot of their fear-based assumptions, a lot of their, their role models ease out because we all have those role models. We all have seen how we have to get on in this red in tooth and claw world. Allow those to ease and what reveals itself is a more integrated perspective, which allows us to see the war, the war mindset, to see the stupidity of it, essentially, or the limiting nature of it, because it undermines creativity, undermines out-of-the-box thinking, it undermines the ability to adapt to change. All of which the orange mindset or the survival mindset wants to also embrace. So to start off with on this journey, you have to appeal to where people are at. You have to appeal to the kind of orange mindset. And, and, and there's a very strong case today now. I think most people get that very strong case, not just for sustainability or for mental health or for transforming your business, but for dealing with volatility of just being able to be more agile. So that's the first sort of step that opens up the orange mind, if you like. But then you have to open it. You have to shift the worldview that that mindset draws from. Otherwise, you're all, always retrofitting and trying to fit things in to the war mentality. And that's a danger because you never get beyond the bu bubble. So you have to encourage people to go through a threshold crossing. Mm -hmm. And for people to want to go through a threshold crossing, there, there needs to be trust. So the most important thing in any leadership development and organizational development work is creating that field of trust. And what really underpins that is an understanding of how power works, you know, the desire to share power. Now, that in itself speaks to the current mindset and the challenges of the current mindset. Because the current mindset says, well, hang on, a minute. if I'm sharing power, I'm giving something away because it still is based on this parent child or this superior uh, undermine um, dynamic um, rather than shifting into the story of reconnection or regeneration where we realize that actually power is everywhere power is infinite it's not finite and that's that shift from competition um, one wins at the expense of the other into us being able to co-create and work together so you have to speak to that shift in power which in my experience happens most deeply when we open up and connect when we truly open up to our heart center, when we truly open up to life, then actually that shift in power, that shift in perception happens most fundamentally. And I think it's it's uh, it's interesting you mentioned power. I was going to come back and ask the question. Part of the mechanistic mindset is top down. I'm in control. I govern the world. I govern my home. I govern my company. Um, just briefly on the geopolitics of the world today. And Laura, you've been involved with the World Economic Forum. I believe you've done some work with them as well, Giles. There's a lot of talk about the Great Reset right now, right, because of COVID. Um, what opportunities do you see the notion of regeneration creating in the context of this Great Reset? And also, and I'll maybe start with Laura and then go to Giles, I'd love for you to just say a few words about how can regenerative mindset help us deal with some of the geopolitical issues facing the world today? Maybe we'll start with Laura and then Giles. 
As I said in the beginning, there has never been a clearer case for viewing problem solving and challenges in an interconnected way than, we, than the challenge we, we are right in the midst of. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't bring us out of this challenge just to solve things over here. We need these, this interconnected approach where nation states and countries become less um, important. It's the, it's the partnership, it's the collaboration. That is what will truly advance us to, to the next level. And of course, nation states and countries and, and, and whatnot are still incredibly important and different countries have had different approaches to how to solve this challenge. But still, it's an incredibly important case um, that, that if, if nation states are able to see this as how could this be a case for addressing this in an interconnected holistic way where we take our societies to the next regenerative level by collectively assessing where our current design have this inbuilt, inbuilt fragility and how could we start to replace this with, with inbuilt resiliency? How could we start to learn from each other? To speak to your point about competition just before, how can we approach this in a way where we create win-win-win situations where I win, you win, but the greater ecosystems upon which our survival depends upon wins as well. And that is a mindset that we thankfully see more and more, um, also going through a pandemic. We see kind of very rigidly, we see two types of executives right now. We see those that are just kind of trying to uh, make ends meet um, here and now and are going through an incredibly tough period where they cannot, where they don't have the energy to think slightly longer term. And then we have the executives that understand that this is just a drill. This is just an example of many similar global interconnected challenges that will come in the future. And I better start looking at my entire value chain, my entire ecosystem, and start to slowly but surely ensure that I have this inbuilt resiliency into my organizational design. So that's something that we see more and more of. Also, when we talk about geopolitics and when we talk about how can we assess this in a way where we make sure we have inbuilt resiliency for our countries, for our nation states going forward. So because this, in many ways, this, this is just a drill of the future shocks that will hit, hit our civilizations in the very near future. Giles, any reflection on the issue of geopolitics and regeneration? Yeah, well, it's a big one. Um, I will try and be succinct. So there's a lot here. Um, there is a lot to it is playing out, and I think a lot back to control and power. Um, it'd be interesting how much around the Great Reset um, is um, encouraging a centralization of power, um, and how much of it is encouraging a bottom up emergence um, for people to locally attune and to be empowered. The two are fundamentally different. And so that's going to play out. Now, um, to Laura's point, fundamentally, this is about uh, learning and how can we learn from each other and how can we share and how can we, how can we gain that sense of 
all in this together. So the diversity and the unity, the unity and the diversity, that playing out. Now, all of the adult developmental psychology models out there talk about the shift from me to we, to me, to we, to me, to we. And what we're seeing here, if you use biodynamics, is this shift from sort of kind of orange, which is very me, into green, which is more we, then into sort of teal and turquoise. And that shift goes through a threshold crossing into living systems, where the me to we dynamic shifts now, I'm not sure how much of today's work um, is, is in that shift place or how much of it still gets tainted with a desire for control. Mm -hmm. So control can happen at the we level in quite an oppressive way, but be seen as benign. It be, can be seen as benefiting um, the society or the state nation or a, the Europe or the, uh, the world. Yeah. Um, and in so doing, actually normalizing things. Now, if it creates an environment that allows people to come alive, to follow their own diversity, then that is something quite different from something that almost creates a structure, which actually is, is going back into more of a blue mindset to use biodynamics. So we've just got to be careful and we've got to be aware how we move forward, how much of the shift that we're seeing emerging in these times of breakdown and breakthrough has a sense, and we can sense it in our own heart. We know it. You can sense it intuitively if you allow yourself to be more practiced at sensing. How much of it is coming from a place of honoring essentially truth, love, wisdom, and allowing diversity and allowing us to tune to global ways. So we have global policies and frames, but local attunement and, and wisdom. Um, so we celebrate um, indigenous cultures. We celebrate communities in other parts of the world. We don't try and uh, put certain views and values from other parts of the world on them. So we celebrate that diversity, yet whilst creating a frame that can allow uh, the unity. So that tension is very interesting. And I believe it's a tension that transcends left and right in politics. It transcends the old story, essentially, of capitalism and socialism into something fundamentally more interesting around a regenerative way of operating. So that I'm looking forward to seeing evolve over the next few years. So you would see, and we're going to wrap up here soon, but so you would see sort of a regeneration as a universal model for uh, you call it the logic of life. There's a universality around your regeneration that that sort of a transcends culture. So whether you're in Africa, your government leader in Africa, or your business leader in Japan or United States, uh, the the concepts in the book can be applied irrespective of culture, irrespective of uh, of, of nationality. W would you agree? Yes, with uh, a respect to the place and the wisdom of that place. That's very important. Uh, 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 good. So to wrap up, I have two questions to close up here, and I really appreciate your your taking the time to do this podcast with us because I think the topic of regeneration is one that is going to uh, re resonate with our uh, international and, and U.S. members across the world. Uh, let's just briefly talk about. Uh, I'm a utility executive or energy executive, and I'm coming to either of you to have a conversation around this issue of regeneration. I want to go down this regenerative journey. And my board of directors are telling me, uh, Lawrence, you know, this thing is going to disrupt our, our business model. It's going to disrupt how we deal with our profits and how we deal with our, our supply chain and all these other sort of interrelated things. What do you tell me as a business leader to convince me to get on this journey? What, what, what will be the 
two or three things you will tell me that will convince me to, to not just pick up the book, but to apply the tools and to become more regenerative in my, in my leadership skills? What would be some of your uh, sort of a short admonishment or convincing words, if you may? Maybe Laura first and then Giles. I mean, it's very simple. If you want to be here in not only in the long-term future, if you want to be here and be a prosperous, successful company in five years' time, you need to admit to the fact that you live in a world where we, for a very long time, have ruthlessly extracted resources, depleted resources. And for us to be a prosperous business in five years' time, we need to start replenishing and regenerating and ensuring aliveness in every cell of our ecosystem. We simply cannot go on as we have done for the past 50, 100 years. We need entirely new ways. We need radically new ways. It's not, it's not just about changing few things here and there. Of course, you can eat the elephant in bites, but it is about redesigning a new way that is based on life-affirming regenerative principles, that is based on the logic of this planet that we inhabit, that we are fortunate to inhabit, but is aligned with life is aligned with your inner deep purpose, is aligned with your desire to build a legacy you can be proud of. And business people are human beings as well. They have children as well. They see the destruction that is going on around the world as well. And we need to make sure that we start embarking on a course that we can be proud of, a legacy we can be proud of, and that it is possible. It's, in fact, it is the only way to be fully prosperous as a business if you're starting to align your, your ways with life. Or else you will go extinct and you will be the next Nokia, the next Kodak, the next blockbuster that didn't see the writing on the wall in due time. And Giles, picking up what Laura said, have you seen examples of leaders around the world, you don't have to call their names, but have you been, have you seen a sort of a, a groundswell of, of leaders now jumping on the regeneration uh, uh, bandwagon, if you want to call it a bandwagon? Well, I'll go straight to that point, which is that, no, this isn't a regenerative bandwagon. We've got to be careful that this isn't just another, you know, another fad, another managerial thing. This is much deeper than that. Sure. So, yes, the short answer is uh, more and more leaders are opening, uh, are, are shifting their consciousness. I think that's happening around the world in all um, parts of the world. And to your question around three points um, to, to, to meet the leader at, really building on what Laura said, you know, point number one, foresight. You know, the, the leader loves to speak to strategy and the future. Um, so speak to it. You know, get the macro trends out on the table and, and get them all out there and, and allow the leader to see what's happening over the next five years and where we're going to be standing from five years back looking to today. Um, be sure that all of these topics that we talk about in the book are going to be way up the priority stack. So that's number one, the foresight. We're, we're just adapting to the future. Number two is then bring to yourself to the current moment, to the present moment, the as is in the system. You know, speak to that business leader and, and, and ask him, how does he feel? his system is currently operating? How is it currently dealing with the level of stress in the system and in the ecosystem? And how does he wish to unlock exponential value? 
Does he wish to unlock exponential? And how can he do that when he's tested all the other things, lean manufacturing and zero waste and so forth? And that is where regenerative comes in to unlock that exponential value through people. And the third is through what Laura mentioned as well, which is the personal speak to the human being, speak to the leader. The leader won't have got himself into that position as being a leader unless they have something about them. They will be able to detect from speaking to their children, from speaking to um, other people, from reading what's going on, that something is shifting. And they wish to play to a legacy. They have egos. And so play to that legacy. In their heart, what do they want to go down in history for? How do they want to shift this company? How do they want to step out of the status quo? So with those three areas, which you could cover in the elevator, if you wished for 30 seconds, yeah. usually people are going, okay, tell me more. Well, you have convinced me. Uh, that's why I bought the book. That's why I read the book. And I'm going to end where you ended and have you to reflect on where you ended the book. Um, and I will just read briefly the last page of the book, not the entire page, but you said something, you've written something that I find very, very powerful. And you begin the page by saying the logic of life is nothing more than nothing more nor less than love. And then the last sentence in the book is, business is perhaps the most powerful organized force of human creativity on the planet today. And by transforming the business mindset, we go a very long way to transforming our civilization. So the concept of love is not something you hear business people talk about a lot. Uh, but love is there. And you talk about that in the book. And you end the book on this whole point of love. So. What gives you hope for the future, given that you ended the book on such a positive note with love being what the logic of life is? What gives you hope for the future? Will we have businesses becoming more loving? Or will we have business leaders that are demonstrating love in how they govern themselves? What gives you hope for the future? First, Laura, and then Giles. In many ways, even though it may sound really weird, um, because 2020 has been so tough on so many people, mm -hmm. but in many ways, um, I haven't been more hopeful than, than the past year, because we need, we need the breakdown for us to collectively have the breakthrough as well. We need to stop in our tracks. We need to see things in new ways. We need to come back to center. We need to come back to what matters the most. And we have all, not only executives, we have all been forced to come back to center, align with ourselves. We have been, not only have we seen on society where things are collapsing, but we have also been forced to address in our own personal lives what doesn't function. We've been, we have, we've been forced to tune into our heart center. It's not easy and it's still not easy for a lot of people because no collapse is easy, but we, we are on the verge of a breakthrough into a new era is what I deeply believe. Um, and, and therefore, us being able to, on a global scale, go through a collective metamorphosis. We are right now in the gooey state of the, uh, when the caterpillar is going through its metamorphosis. It's in this chrysalis and it's gooey and it's, it, it's, it's dark and it's full of confusion. 
but there will come a breakthrough into something better because we've been forced to reflect about issues we have ignored for too long. So that is what is giving me hope. It's never been easier for Jazz or I to have these conversations with executives because right now there's, there's an open crack into their heart space where it's suddenly possible to have these kinds of conversations. Someone said that nature has humbled us uh, yeah. to some extent. Giles, what gives you hope? Well, uh, uh, yeah, to build on what Laura said, I mean, I, I don't think it's necessarily hope. I, I don't think it's necessarily even belief. I think it's a knowing. Um, I, I've, I've had this for, for many years. And um, what enables, it's, it's a knowing, it's a, it's a deep love of, of life uh, that actually relates then to a deep uh, belief and, 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 and knowing of humanity's innate qualities yeah so what makes humans special is that they have this love um very loving ma mammals it was that so sociality that really enabled us to adapt our civilizations um so there's love there's wisdom i mean the whole concept of being a homo sapien is meant to be being a wise being where you were yet to fully perhaps live into that but it's coming and of course there is wisdom throughout the ages from ancient um shamanic cultures and indigenous cultures still with us today that we are only just beginning to tap into and the third quality is around playfulness and creativity you know we're like the ape that never grew up and and that ability to stay in the childlike mind has been warped into sort of creating apple technology and so forth and it's just as relevant for creating the futures that we desire so we are playing with this capacity that we have as human beings as wise loving and creative people to date we've been kind of filling it up with how to satisfy our wants and needs and i think we're now getting to a threshold where we're realizing oh my gosh and we're waking up to what it truly means to be human we're waking up to be adults and that that is fascinating and so what gives me hope is our innate capacity as human beings to become more human, to cross the threshold and live up to our name. Well, our guests today has been uh, Giles Hutchins and Laura Storm, authors of Regenerative Leadership, the DNA of life-affirming 21st century organizations. I think we've certainly scraped the surface, just touched the surface of this very interesting topic, very intriguing book. We, uh, we certainly recommend so many people to go and get it because I truly believe that uh, the metamorphosis that you've talked about and that uh, you've laid out here, Giles, also in terms of the, the issue of power and, and the role of government and the role of corporations, I think regeneration is going to be the, the pillar for uh, the next business uh, leadership skills that we have to uh, develop. So thank you so much for joining us and goodbye for now. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Electric Perspectives Global Circuit, an EEI International Programs podcast. For more episodes, subscribe to the Electric Perspectives podcast wherever you get your podcasts or visit eei.org international. Mm -hmm.